This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. You would please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. Continue on as we have in the book of Genesis. We'll be looking at the entirety of chapter 16, 16 verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed your maid is in your hand, do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Be'er Laharoi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son who Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, We see here a difficult text and that it is one that is in many ways filled with sin and rebellion against you. 
And yet even in this dark time in the history of your people, we see your hand of grace. We even see your gospel. We see Christ shown forth in it. I pray that you would illuminate our hearts to receive this word and know what you want us to know concerning it. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever been impatient? You don't have to answer that. Of course, we all have. But can you think of a situation in your life in which you made something worse, you made a situation worse by being impatient? Again, you probably wouldn't have to think too long or too hard to come up with something. It's something we all do. Heidi and I sometimes watch TV cooking competition shows. And one of the dreaded challenges that comes up on most of these shows is something known as a cheese souffle. A cheese souffle is a baked dish. It's basically this light, fluffy dome of cheese. It's very symmetrical. It's very nice looking. But it has to be cooked in the oven at just the right temperature for just the right length of time. If it is cooked too long, or not long enough, or if it is shaken, or if even the oven is opened at the wrong time, the souffle just collapses and the whole thing is ruined. Really, the cheese souffle, and I think this is the reason that they make contestants do this, it's more of a test of character than of cooking skill, because it forces one to be patient and deliberate and precise under intense pressure in front of a TV audience. It could be millions of people. Of course, in the grand scheme of life, cheese souffle is not all that important. Unless you're really hungry, in which case now it may sound very important. But other things in life are very important, and they put to the test our patience and trust in the Lord. We are all inclined to impatience. But our impatience can be a destructive force. It can cause great harm. It can cause us to despise God's word and God's promises. And in our text today, we will see a very destructive case of impatience that starts with Abram's wife, Sarai, and it concerns the covenant promises that God had just made to Abram, as we saw last week in chapter 15. So we'll be looking at chapter 16 today in four points. First, we see a shortcut in verse 1 through the first part of verse 4. Sarai comes up with a plan. She comes up with a scheme to kind of help the promises along. They're not really coming around as fast as she'd like or in the way they expect. So, So she's got this idea, a shortcut. Second, we will see strife in the second part of verse 4 through verse 6, this Shortcut has a lot of unintended consequences, produces a lot of pain and sorrow and division in the home. Third, security in verses 7 through 14. Though this situation was produced in impatience and disobedience, God will use it for his purposes and even bless the most unlikely of people in the most unlikely of places. And then fourth and finally, a son in verses 15 and 16. At the end of all of this, Abram will have his first child. So again, we have shortcut, strife, security, and a son. So first, the shortcut in verse 1 through the beginning of verse 4. 
So we pick up where we left off before in chapter 15. Now remember there that Abram had received these covenant promises that he would have children as numerous as the stars in the sky. This came after Abram's own episode of doubt where he had wondered, given his advanced age, if the previous promises that God had made to him were actually going to come to pass. Well, God responded that in fact they would, and God made this covenant. He even took the penalties, the sanctions of breaking the covenant on himself by walking between the dead animals. All that would need to happen for this covenant to come to pass, God would do. God would bring it about. Now you would think in light of that, that would produce trust. That would produce faithful waiting. But that is not the case. Because we see now in chapter 16, a shift to Sarai's perspective. She has been relatively quiet throughout this account of the life of Abram. We've known that she was there. She's been listed before. She factored, for instance, in the previous debacle in Egypt where Abram tried to pass her off as a sister and not a wife. But here in chapter 16, she takes a more active role. So thus far, Sarai has not borne Abram any children. This is, at their age, quite a problem. At this point, Abram is 85 years old. Sarai is about 75 years old. Now, you do have to factor in that people lived longer back then, so as far as overall in life, she wouldn't be as far along as a 75-year-old now, but still getting past the typical age of childbearing. So, she is facing this dilemma she knows that Abram has been told that these covenant promises have been made, that he is going to be the father of innumerable descendants of nations. And yet she is here wrestling with her own worldly thinking that, well, that ship has sailed as far as it relates to her. She's too old. She's not going to have any children. She hasn't had any children. And so considering these things from her worldly perspective, she comes up with this plan, this shortcut. From their time in Egypt, Sarai has this maidservant named Hagar. Hagar would have been basically her personal servant, would have been her attendant, would have helped Sarai with whatever she needed. And she was apparently younger and of a more reasonable childbearing age. So Sarai decides that Hagar would be a suitable alternative, a way to bring the covenant to pass, a way to help it along. Abram can take Hagar as a second wife and have children by her. Now Sarai makes a rather remarkable statement as she pitches this solution to Abram. She says, see now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. So she knows, she acknowledges that it is God's hand that has thus far kept her from having children. And yet by her actions, she is showing that she is unwilling or unable to accept that the same God who has thus far withheld children from her could reverse her fortunes and grant her children. We also don't see here any evidence that Sarai sought the will of the Lord in doing this. You could contrast this with another situation we looked at some months back of another barren woman, Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah had been kept from children, and she was desperate, but what did she do? She didn't 
come up with any schemes like this. Instead, she went to the tabernacle. She went to the house of God and she poured out her heart and soul to the Lord in prayer. We don't see any indication that Sarai did anything of the sort. Sarai just assumes that because she has not had children yet, she will never have children. And so she tells Abram to take Hagar as another wife and have children by her. Now, we don't see here that Abram resists this idea in any way. It seems he simply accepts it. He heeded the voice of Sarai. The shortcut that seems pleasing to Sarai doesn't seem to trip any alarm bells in Abram's mind. And so in verse 3, that is what happens. Abram took Hagar as a second wife. We get the time marker here. This was 10 years after Abram had entered Canaan, and so he would have been, again, about 85 years old. Now, it's not entirely unreasonable to think that both he and Sarai, who was 75, were past the usual childbearing age. And we do see that Abram does take Hagar, and she conceives for him a child. So, so problem solved, right? Everything's good now. Wrong. It's about to get much more difficult and complicated. And so this brings us to our second point. After the shortcut, we see strife in the second part of verse 4 through verse 6. So we see at the end of verse 4 what should have been expected, that conflict arises between Sarai and Hagar. This should come as a surprise to no one. This is what bigamy and polygamy inevitably produce. Clear back in Genesis 4, we saw the first recorded case of bigamy by Lamech. He took two wives. He did it in a situation where he was deviating from the created order. He was breaking God's commands for marriage, which was one man and one woman becoming one flesh. Lamech himself, he was a man of violence and arrogance. And then every other case of polygamy recorded in the Bible produces this sort of conflict and strife in the home. It's a predictable outcome. And so it seems that Hagar now despises Sarai. She is somehow lording it over Sarai that she is the new young wife that is able to have children, while Sarai is old and barren and cannot. There is the jealousy Sarai feels threatened that she's no longer going to be Abram's favorite wife, and it seems that Hagar is okay with this. Now, rather than own her own role in this, we see in verse 5 that Sarai shifts the blame onto Abram. Now, it is not that Abram is blameless in the situation. This was not a good idea. It was never a good idea. Abram, as the head of the household, he should have recognized it was not a good idea and he should have shot it down. And yet Abram, without any apparent resistance, went along with it. But it was Sarai's idea. And Sarai did not consider the full implications of her proposal. It would seemingly solve the childbearing problem, but it would create so many more problems. This jealousy this conflict, this disturbance of peace in their camp. And so it causes Sarai to lash out against Abram. She even goes so far as to call down the wrath of God. She says, the Lord judge between you and me. She breaks the third commandment. 
This was her scheme. She bears ultimate responsibility for it. But she speaks in anger. She speaks rashly, such that she even calls down the wrath of God upon herself. What is bad is about to get worse. Abram does not intervene to correct this situation in any meaningful way. What's done is done. He has another wife. He has a child on the way. And though this whole situation has been conceived and carried out in sin, he now at least has some minimal duty of protection and care towards Hagar and the unborn child, but he completely abandons it. He abdicates it. In verse 6, he gives Hagar into Sarai's hand. She can do with her whatever she wants. Now, what this does do is it does confirm that Sarai is, in fact, still Abram's preferred wife. But in doing this, or really in not doing anything, he so despises Hagar and fails to protect her and treat her honorably, just turning her over to a wrathful rival, giving Sarai in her jealous rage, freedom to do as she pleases. And so we see then, expectedly, that Sarai deals harshly with Hagar. We don't get details as to what she does, but we can imagine the kind of cruelty and severity that jealousy of this sort, that a desire for this kind of revenge can create. Whatever Sarai did to Hagar, it was so bad that Hagar ran away not just away from Sarai, but from the whole camp. She fled into the wilderness. It must be pretty bad when the barren desert wilderness seems better. So what are we to make of this episode thus far? Well, it should be clear to us. It should always be clear to us, though we are prone to forget, that sin never makes anything better. This whole scheme for Abram to have a child by another woman, it was sinful from the get-go, and everyone involved should have known that. It was the most basic of creational ordinances that marriage was to be between one man and one woman, not one man and two women, or any other kind of deviation from that plan. Man breaks from God's good plan and purposes, and chaos and hardship come. And not only does sin never make things better, sin usually produces more sin. What Sarai essentially did was entice her husband to commit adultery with another woman, not foreseeing the inevitable jealousy that would produce even in herself. And then she blasphemes God's name, calling him down in judgment on her. And then she sins against Hagar, treating her cruelly and brutally, so much so that she has to run away. And Abram, by going along with this sinful plan, has invited this strife and hardship and all these other sins into his home, and he has failed to protect those under his care. Sin never makes anything better. So we have this mess of a situation in the house of Abram. What will happen next? Well, despite this tangled web of sin that has been spun by the people involved, God is still working. That brings us to our next point. After the shortcut and strife, we come to security in verses 7 through 14. So what happens to Hagar after she flees into the wilderness? 
Well, it would seem however she left, it was probably fairly abrupt. She ends up in the wilderness, doesn't seem to have any provisions. But God's hand of providence is still involved, and so Hagar is led to a spring. She has water. That's important when you're in the desert. So she's not going to die. She is going to live. But then we also see that the angel of the Lord appears to her. Now, if you're reading in the New King James or some other translation where words that describe God are capitalized, you'll notice the A on angel is capitalized. What's going on with that? Well, this is not just an angel. It cannot merely be an angel. Why do we know this? You skip down to verse 10, you see the angel talk and say, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly. An angel who's just an angel can't do that. Doesn't have the kind of power to create human life. Or skip again down to verse 13. Then she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. This is Hagar talking about the angel. You are the God who sees. So this angel of the Lord is the Lord having appeared and spoken. In fact, many theologians and commentators, including John Calvin, agree that given how this angel appeared in a seemingly visible and human form, and this taken in light of other passages about God being invisible, means that this angel is probably a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God in human flesh. Hagar is likely seeing and speaking with Christ. It's true of other texts in the Old Testament where this divine angel of the Lord appears. But let's look at the angel's interactions with Hagar. He knows who Hagar is, but asks where she has come from and where she is going. Now, it's not that he doesn't know. Being divine, he knows all, but he asks for her sake so that we might hear the answer. Hagar responds that she is fleeing from Sarai. But the angel commands her instead to return to Sarai and submit under her hand. Now, this would not be an easy thing to ask. There would be very little natural and human reason why Hagar would want to go back. Sarai has been intolerably cruel to her such that she fled in the first place. Why should she go back and deal with that again? Well, she gets her reason in what the angel says next. I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they should not be counted for multitude. Now, it's very fascinating here to see that the language is very similar to that that God had previously used to address Abram. To Hagar, this despised and rejected woman is promised What was promised to Abram? Innumerable descendants. She is hated. She is turned away by Sarai. But she has found favor with the Lord. She has found safety and security in the Lord. Of course, the path of Hagar's descendants will be different. Ishmael and those who will come from him, they will be great and many. They will make up many nations but they will be those who grow up outside of the house of God, outside of the knowledge of salvation. They will eventually be enemies of Israel and Israel's God. But for now, God is showing favor and grace to Hagar, this despised and hated woman. 
Now the angel reveals more of what is to happen to Hagar. This child will be a son. And God tells Hagar that he is to be named Ishmael because the Lord has heard her affliction. We learn some things about what Ishmael will be. He will be a wild man, a man of war. Though he will dwell in the camp of Abram for a time, he will eventually be despised again, and he and Hagar will once again be sent away. He will be a sojourner. Yet it says he will dwell in the presence of all his brethren. He will carve out for himself a people and a place. Though it will be a difficult path in a certain way, this child and those who come from him will be blessed. But again, they will do so away from the presence of the Lord. We see here another case of the distinction we have seen before in Genesis between the city of God and the city of man. Ishmael and his descendants will most assuredly belong to the city of man. But by common grace, they will live, they will survive, and eventually, though millennia removed from that day, the gospel of salvation will come to them as it does to the other nations. Now Hagar responds to this word of blessing from the angel of the Lord. She gives God a name, not that he needs it, but to reflect what has happened here. You are the God who sees. The well, the spring where she had this vision, was given a similar name, Be'er Laharoi, from words in the Hebrew for this seeing God. Though she was afflicted, though she suffered, God has seen her and shown her favor and promised her descendants, promised her life, promised her security. But this is not yet the end of the story. After the shortcut strife and security, we come to the son in verses 15 and 16. So we see that Hagar does return to Abram's camp and does indeed bear the son whom Abram names Ishmael. He too believed this word of the angel of the Lord that appeared and names the child accordingly. We also get another time marker. Abram is now 86 years old. And by all accounts, it seems that despite all this wickedness that has gone on in this chapter, maybe it's all going to work out. Maybe it will be okay. In fact, Abram will believe for a time that Ishmael is the son of promise, through whom all of God's promises that have been made to him will come to pass. But there is more to the story yet to be written. Abram will have another son, Isaac, by his wife Sarai, who will be the true son of promise. So what are we to make of this text here today? As I said before, sin never makes anything better. Shortcuts to even try to achieve good things, if they're done outside of the will and ways of God, are doomed for failure. Sarai and Abram and Hagar all learned this the very hard way. Perhaps you are tempted to take these kinds of shortcuts in your life, to pursue a path where the ends justify the means, where some sin now you think might produce a better outcome down the road. Well, let this history serve as a warning. Sin doesn't make anything better. Maybe you're here today and you're more able to identify with Hagar. You've been wronged. You've been treated cruelly and unjustly. People have been unfair to you. They have 
given you things which you do not deserve that are evil. Well, take confidence that just as God saw her and used even the affliction that she was going through for his purposes to bless her, to help her, so too he can do for whatever grief and affliction you are facing. God is the God who sees. He knows the sins we do and he knows the sins done against us. He is not indifferent to them. He doesn't miss them. He doesn't fail to know or see what is going on in our lives. Perhaps, though, you're here today and you're wrestling with your own sin and unworthiness. You think that you're too bad of a person. You've sinned in such a way that God cannot love you or forgive you or accept you. Well, what we have seen here today in one of the preeminent families of Scripture, Father Abraham and his wife, we've seen here great sin and evil. They were not perfect. They were not even close. They early and often fell short of God's will and plan. They were not righteous on their own acts, their own works. They had nothing in their hands to bring to their God. And yet God still loved them, and redeemed them, and carried out his purposes through them. Why? Why not pick someone more righteous? Why not start over with this Ishmael, or someone else completely untouched by this scandal? Because God doesn't choose and save his people based on their works, based on their inherent goodness. No, he chooses and saves fallen, sinful people to show forth his glory. It is through this line of Abram and the son he will eventually have by Sarai that eventually our Lord Jesus Christ comes into the world. And though we are all sinful, he was sinless. Though all the sons of man are born into and carry out sin and disobedience, Jesus kept the law perfectly. Though we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus revealed the glory of God and forgiveness of sins to this world. Though we deserved all the miseries of this life and death and the pains of hell, Christ underwent the wrath of God by his suffering and death on the cross in our place. And he was raised from the dead, conquering death forever. Again, we are all sinners. We bring nothing in our hands to make us any better than Sarai or Abram, much less in any way worthy of salvation. But the gospel offers us salvation because of God's love, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to those who would repent of their sins and believe in him. The God who sees who even sees your sins, who sees the worst things that you've ever done, your deepest and darkest secrets you might not even think anybody knows about, everything you have ever done. The God who sees is the God who saves. And so may all here be saved by his hand. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in what in many ways is this tangled web of sin, 
We see it shown forth in it, your grace, your provision for your people, your care and concern for them. And we even see shown forth in this text, our Lord Jesus Christ, who appeared at the well to Hagar and later came as a human, became like us so that he might deliver us for our sins. Pray that we would all have confidence in this gospel. And because of this gospel and because of the work in the Holy Spirit in us, we would live lives that are pleasing to you, turning aside from sin, not turning to these pragmatic and worldly solutions to problems, but trusting wholly in you and seeking to please you in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.